I think this is true. I think every single season when I've recorded the last episode, it has started raining. Like as I go, as I'm finishing the episode at night, it starts raining. I'm becoming really superstitious. (laughs) I said, if God takes you, I will never go to church again. Salt and light. Where does it say light? Nobody told me you can grieve this. You're going to be grieving sex in your marriage. You are the salt of the earth. Well, I put a baby in your tummy. So everything was held in God's hand that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Let's start, um, you know, kissing. <laughs> Let's try the ESV. Hi, I'm Danielle, and welcome back to Salty. For those of you that are new, Salty is a Christian podcast, and the idea for this season, Call Me Baby, came because I experienced my first real heartbreak last summer when I miscarried what would have been my second child. You can hear that whole story by heading to saltypodcast.com and checking out episode 23, but in a nutshell, this season has been about the various ways we wrestle with love, heartbreak, and faith. I never wanted to devote a season to romance or even parenthood on Salty because I felt like those topics were so often spotlighted in my Christian circles. And to be honest, I just feel like it's really hard to talk about those things well. But then I found myself steeped in a thick anger towards God and towards my body. I felt betrayed that I had so bravely asked God to give me something good to love, another baby at a very specific time, and that he gave it and then took it from me in what seemed like a cruel way. So after my miscarriage, I distanced myself emotionally from God, from my husband, and even from my bright-eyed little boy. I had finally felt hurt enough by love that I began to run from it like so many angsty pop stars had been singing about for years. Now, I thought, now I'm ready to talk about love on Salty. And I'm going to share about its cruelty, its weakness under the shadow of death, its ability to take us out with one well-aimed punch. But right in the nick of time before I'd officially traded in all of my musical bangers for pure Evanescence and Bonnie Vare, I found Julian of Norwich. And her words, or rather the words God shared with her in her darkest hour, brought me back to the person I really was. I'm not an angsty, angry person at my core. I'm not someone who avoids the touch of my husband or the invitation to play robots with my son. I love love. I want it. I wanted that baby that God took from me, and after I lost it, I wanted another one so badly, no matter how hard I tried to deny it. (sighs) Denial, fear, they seem like such good ideas after love has been lost. And telling ourselves or others the truth, the real truth of what we've been through, who we truly are, what we really desire. That seems like such a terrible idea when, you know, we could just hide instead. Today's guest is going to tell her truth, and she's going to share the effects secrecy, denial, and hiding had on her life and on the life of her child. Before we go any further, though, today's episode is not PG. 
There will be a few curse words that I decided not to take out. There is some sexual language, and we will be listening to a story about someone's abortion. With that being said, I wouldn't say that this is an overly graphic description of the abortion process, and I can't stress this enough. This is not pro-life or pro-choice propaganda. The point of this story is not to present a debate or an argument. Arguments have their place in topics of abortion and reproductive rights, but Salty is mainly about telling stories. So I would ask you to graciously hear this one, as you would any other on this show. Today's guest asked to remain anonymous, and so the voice you hear today has lots of audio effects, as you'll notice, and it's not the real voice of the woman who told me her story. Okay, here we go. The last story of Call Me Baby. I grew up believing that God expected perfection from me. My family went to this small Episcopal church, and and I remember being a teenage girl sitting in the congregation and just silently feeling conviction a lot because I had my first sexual experience at the age of 14. And yeah, when I think about it, most of my guilt and shame back then had to do with sexual stuff. I just always had this feeling that God demanded perfection. And because of my sexual choices, I always had a feeling that I was falling short of that. So the best I could do was hide my failings from everyone around me. And then it might sort of feel like I had never failed in the first place. It's funny, my family had a way of communicating the way things should be without actually communicating. For example, um, that 14-year-old boy I dated that I had my first sexual experience with, my mom just made a comment one day. She was like, you've told that boy you're not playing house, right? And I didn't really know what that meant, but I assumed she was saying, don't have sex. But by the time she said that, you know, we'd already been experimenting sexually. Or like my mom and dad once told me, men are assholes and you're going to have to put up with a lot. But no one ever defined what a lot was. And yet, I think they were trying to communicate something to me. So, you know, I grew up, I navigated all of this stuff myself and I just did the best I could, I think. My mom was right, by the way. Some of the men, some of the boys were assholes. Guys would just like ask for sex sometimes. And if I said no, they'd call me, they'd they'd like call me a fucking prude. So yeah, it was just easier to, you know, like give a blowjob instead of put up with that kind of abuse. That was, that's just how it was sometimes. No one taught me about consent. We didn't even use words like that back then. But uh, anyways, I got really into theater. My dream was to be a singer or an actress, so I started doing theater at this community college in my town and eventually at different community theaters in the area. People told me I had the whole package, long legs, a good ear, and the theater is where I met Eric. 
I was a lead actress in a play we were working on and Eric was in the ensemble. I mean, yeah, I knew he was interested in me. I could always tell he was interested in me. Later, I'd find out that he asked all of the guys in our little theater company if anyone was dating me. And since the answer was no, he asked me out and, you know, we started dating. Um, you know, we were young, but Eric cared about me as a person. Unlike some of the other guys I'd hooked up with, he respected me. He even respected my parents. He, he had a real job. He was four years older than me, and I just thought of him as like, you're a real grown man. I trusted him. He was good to me. I was proud to be with him. So yeah, we started having unprotected sex, like six months into our relationship. I wasn't a child anymore at this point, you know, but I was still naive. He was older than me, so I think I just thought, like, he knows what he's doing, you know, he, I thought he would know what he was doing when it came to preventing a pregnancy. Well, one day, after a year of dating, Eric randomly asked me, like, why haven't you had your period yet? And I was shocked that he'd even noticed because I hadn't even thought about it before he brought it up. I didn't know what to say. Like, he was right. It was late. But see, like back then, we couldn't go to a drugstore and just pick up a pregnancy test for a couple dollars. If you wanted to figure out if you were pregnant, you had to schedule an appointment with a doctor. So I, I don't actually remember scheduling that appointment or much about that day that I found out I was pregnant. I, I really wish I did. I just remember that eventually, after Eric brought this up, like, I figured it out and I told Eric I was pregnant. And, and, and he immediately called a clinic and scheduled me an appointment to have an abortion. He called me on the phone, told me what time the appointment was, and I said, okay. I died. I don't remember so many of like the details of these events leading up to the abortion because at this point I was like completely numb. I was just going through the motions and doing the next thing. I know that's hard to understand. I do remember that before my appointment, I had been at rehearsal for a play and in the dressing room, I told a few of the other actresses that I was having an abortion. This one girl in the dressing room told me that, oh, like, it's no big deal. I've had five abortions, she said. I remember her explaining to me, souls just circle around the earth, you know, like waiting to be embodied. Basically, she was saying that I wasn't killing anything permanent. And as much as I wanted to believe her when she told me that, I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. Even that, like, as numb as I was deep down, there was some part of me that did really believe that something was actually going to be dying. The clinic was the smaller building across the street from the hospital. And when I went in, they asked me if I wanted counseling before the procedure. So. I said yes, and and I just remember sitting in a room with 
this woman that worked there and she told me that the thing inside of me was just a blob of tissue, that there wasn't a heartbeat. She said I might feel some cramping, but basically the counseling was just information about the process. It wasn't like counseling in the sense that they were asking me about my emotional state or something like that. It was just very fast. And that's the thing that you're probably sensing is that all of this was fast. All of this was easy. It was so easy to just make this appointment, so easy to make this decision even back then. And, and it didn't stop being easy until after it was all over. That's when things became more complicated for me. So, so the day of the appointment, I was still feeling numb, but now when I look back, I was actually, I was actually like devastated inside. I, I went into this room at the clinic and they, um, you know, forcefully dilated my cervix and then they brought out this huge needle. And I remember like looking at it and wondering if I was a knitting needle because that's exactly what it looked like. And you know, I, I started having these extreme cramps like I'd never felt before and that was it. It took one minute, like it was fast. It was really, really fast. I had called a close friend of mine actually to ask her if I could stay the night at her house instead of at my own house, obviously. My family didn't know anything about this. So I went over to her house after the appointment and she took really good care of me. The women that lived at that house were really, really good to me. I remember them like making me a bath and um, they said that would help the cramping and I just sat in the bath and, you know, tried my best to get through the pain. And you know, that that's, that, that's when all this guilt started to hit. I felt guilty immediately, way more guilt than I'd felt beforehand leading up to it all. I just, I wanted the guilt to stop so badly, so badly. And immediately the only thing I could think of to fix this would be to marry Eric, the man I'd made this decision with. But like after this, it was so hard to even be intimate with him after the abortion. It just, it didn't fix the guilt. Um, but you know, we went through with it anyway. I titled this season Call Me Baby because this last year of my life was all about babies. Wrestling with my own willingness to even carry another baby, an all-out addiction to pregnancy tests, losing a baby, longing for another, and then surprisingly struggling to utter the word out loud, baby. But not just struggling to call the creatures in my womb baby, but struggling to call my husband, my three-year-old son baby or even hearing myself referred to as baby. Now, pet names are cringy, I know. I've seen many a person wince when hearing two lovers call each other baby, 
Before I fell in love, I winced too. But then I met Jake and suddenly just calling each other by our names didn't feel like enough sometimes. So in came babe and then babes. And in the sweetest or most stressful or most desperate moments, baby. It's a powerful word and yet embarrassing all at once. People have strong reactions to it, much like babies themselves. But in summary, most of us call people baby when we love them, when we acknowledge that there's something precious about them to us. And calling someone baby also acknowledges that we see ourselves as being in a position to care for that person. This is why it can be so offensive to be called baby by the wrong person. Anne Hathaway gets pretty ticked when her shady one-night stand calls her baby in Devil Wears Prada. Shh. I have to go. Andy. Andy, it's done. Baby, it's done. I'm not your baby. Michelle Pfeiffer does too when Tony Montana gets too invasive with his questions and Scarface. Now you're talking to me, baby. That I like, okay? Keep it coming, baby. Don't call me baby. I'm not your baby. Uh, not yet, man. You gotta give me some time. In this story we're hearing today, and I think in most of our painful or most secretive stories, there's usually a baby somewhere in it. We lost one. Or maybe we hurt one physically or we push them away emotionally. Maybe we're the baby in the story and we were abused or lied to or abandoned. This season has taught me that in everyone's greatest heartbreaks, there's something innocent, hopeful, and vulnerable that was harmed. So how does a harmed baby heal? How are these stories redeemed? As I was reading Julian of Norwich through the grieving process of my miscarriage, I found the answer to that question. We'll hear it at the end of the show, but there's still healing to be found in the story we're hearing today. So let's get back to it. Looking back on it, part of me wonders, like, if I would have had to make the appointment myself or even, I don't know, like, had the time or the space to consider keeping the baby, I don't know if I would have gone through with the abortion or not. When it came to my body or sex or so many other things, I I had no idea how to stick up for myself or share my voice. So when it came to this decision that would go on to affect me on such a deep level, I just didn't even like really understand that I could say no. And I'm not saying it isn't my responsibility or something like that. I'm not saying that I didn't make a decision. I did. I I made the decision. It's just that my decision to go through with an abortion came from a much broader context of a culture of sex and secrecy and taboos and shame and my not knowing how to find my voice at all in the sea of all this stuff. So yeah, I mean, Eric and I got married and, you know, my mom actually got sick. Um, pretty early in my marriage it was and it was this mixture of the fact that I wanted to experience what it would be like getting pregnant within a marriage and my mom getting sick that led me and Eric to try to have a baby 
it took us five it took us five months to get pregnant and what was so crazy was how incredibly difficult it was to get pregnant with the same man I'd had an abortion with but this time in the context of a marriage and when we found out we were so excited not scared or ashamed I told my sister and my mom and you know instead of sneaking around and hiding it from everyone we just you know everyone was just so excited this pregnancy that was made by me and Eric just like the last one this one was all about burp racks and baby toys and joy all because of a different context the context determined what we thought of the pregnancy and the life itself and with that that first baby that i had with eric there were there wasn't really any negative aroma of the previous abortion i was just so happy and so in love with my child and i felt like you know maybe i had moved on and kind of escaped it My mom passed away eventually, and I went on to have more children with Eric. At this point, I was completely devastated that my mom had died, and I was just angry about the ways that life had been so hard for me. But at the same time, I still saw God the way that I'd seen him as a young girl at church. You know, like, he wasn't going to cut me a break. He demanded perfection, and either I could fail the standard and feel shame, I could do my best to be perfect, at least on the outside, and pretend that was who I really was. So I chose to be perfect. I raised my kids and my family and I went to church as often as we could. I tried to be a good mom and make good choices for my kids. But that abortion was this one thing that I couldn't make perfect, that I couldn't escape from. And throughout raising my children when they were young, weird things started happening, keeping me from forgetting about the abortion. Um, like this one night, I was lying in bed next to my son while he was sleeping, and I saw a figure of a young girl who I'd never seen before standing in the doorway, and she was staring at me. It was the worst feeling, just like immediate terror and shame. And then, you know, she left. And I immediately thought, like, this is this awful reminder of my abortion. The secret I've been carrying and trying to hide is still with me. And then years later, my young daughter, when she was only like three or four years old, she looked at me and she told me that she knew I had six babies, not five. I had five children after getting married, and I hadn't ever told my children, you know, about the fact that their father and I had, a term had terminated a pregnancy. So again, it was another reminder, like, you're not escaping this thing. It was, it just felt like this, and this reminder that I couldn't escape what I had done. Under the starry sky, we will ourselves we'll find the winter moon and it will light away 
And there's nothing I can do to escape from you There's nothing I can do to escape from you There's nothing I can do to escape from you At the church we are part of, they encourage the practice of confession with a priest. And every time it was brought up, I would feel this talk, like, tell your priest, tell your priest about the abortion. And I remember listening to Christian radio on my car and hearing these commercials about pregnancy crisis centers. And, you know, I'd feel this tug again, like, tell somebody, tell somebody. So, you know, I just, eventually I knew I had to address it somehow. I couldn't just keep it to myself any longer. And I think I was like getting close to a nervous breakdown. So my, my priest had started doing this Bible study on the book of Mark. And I remember learning about the disciples casting out demons. And that's when something clicked for me. Something about that just made me realize that all my life I'd felt this spiritual darkness around me, but especially after that abortion, like with that girl that was standing in my doorway and hearing that the disciples had authority over something as terrifying as a demon gave me hope somehow. I just, I think the Holy Spirit was nudging me towards confession for a long time. And then finally, I was ready to do it. My priest at the time had this ability to seem unfazed by morally shocking things or even like people's emotions in general. He, he had this sort of emotional detachment from other people's response to the gospel. He was just confident in what it said. And it was actually that quality in him that made me think he would be a safe person to confess to. But like my one big fear at that time was that if I confessed my abortion, it would like disqualify me from serving the church or working with kids or, you know, being a trustworthy person. Because by this time I was, you know, raising my kids. I was even teaching Sunday school. I was, you know, I was afraid that someone would hear what I did and say like, you're not good enough to be around children. Like you're not good enough to be a part of this like ministry or this church. But, you know, it was eating me up and I just, I couldn't hold it in any longer. So I scheduled an appointment for confession with my priest. When I finally got there, I met with him. You know, he asked me, like, what do you want to confess? And I told him I was too embarrassed to say, like, that I didn't think I could do it. I made it this far and I got there and I was like, no, I can't. I can't do this. And... And he like handed me a piece of yellow paper and a pen and he left the room and he said, why don't you try writing it down and I'll be back in five minutes. So I wrote it down on the paper. Um, I handed it to him and I don't remember everything he said, but the first thing that he did say was that my abortion was not an unforgivable sin. 
and you know immediately it just felt like this heavy weight that had been on top of me was gone I remember he told me to read Psalm 51 and that I should try my best to help other women and you know that was it I had felt like all those years of keeping the secret um, and all the shame and that I, all the shame I was feeling and the weird things that were happening like I just felt like God was sort of haunting me reminding me of what I had done so that I never forget and never escape the shame but then but then I realized that the Holy Spirit was leading me to confess to confess it, not to receive more punishment, but to receive forgiveness. I always felt like I couldn't face God because, you know, because he only wanted this perfect version of me. So coming to him or to other Christians and sharing my shame, sharing the truth, felt like I'm, you know, signing myself up for condemnation. But this one act of confession, it changed me in such a powerful way. I realized that what God actually had for me was grace. He was begging me to confess because he wanted to give me grace. He sees the mistake I made, but you know, he also sees someone that he loves and he wants me to bring my whole person to him so that he can love me, not so that he can, you know, reject me or humiliate me. My decision to have an abortion is one that I'll have to live for for the rest of my life. It was a, a bad thing that I can never take back. It still makes me cry, even after all those years and after being forgiven and after going through life, meeting other women who have kept their abortions a secret and feel, and feel regret or remorse about them. I think that so many of us have the same story. We didn't want to acknowledge the pain or you know, speak it out loud to anyone, because if we did, then, then by doing that, we'd never escape the abortion. But I think that keeping it all in, like never admitting the effects of it, keeps so many women from joy or freedom or grace. And that's not actually what God wants. When I confessed to the right person, I received that grace and I was finally able to actually begin the process of healing and and helping others. It's really, really important to remember that the problem of abortion is not a political problem, or at least not at its core. I don't think there's any going back from the pervasiveness of abortion on a national level. So when I hear people trying to like, address the problem of abortion with provoking arguments, debating, yelling. It's, um, it's strange. 
because when you're the, when you're the person that's had an abortion it's not political at all it's not a debate i share my story when i feel like god tells me to to remind people that abortion is a story that involves real women and real babies and and every time that i've shared my story there's always been someone listening that has had an abortion too every single time and I share my story for those women, not to punish myself or, you know, dig back into the shame, but to give back the grace that I was given, to give back the grace that, that saved me. When I asked today's guest if she would tell me this story, I thought it would be a story about abortion. And obviously, in part, it is. But it's turned out that this story is largely about confession. And confession, I know, is one of those Christian buzzwords that rallies the troops to put on their theology hats and get all defensive. But for the purposes of today's episode, I'd like to think of confession as the act of speaking what was silent the act of revealing the wounds, the secrets we've been hiding. The woman who spoke today said that she feared that confession would leave her exposed, ostracized from her church community and condemned in the eyes of loved ones. I was processing my thoughts about confession with my husband this week, and he said that in the same way that God truthfully told Adam and Eve that when they ate of the fruit, they'd surely die, he thinks now we're sort of told the lie that if we confess, we will surely die. That's how hard it is to actually speak out loud these issues that hold our greatest shames, fears, and sins. I think he's right. I think it feels like dying to do it. And speaking of dying, we're going to take one last trip to the city of Norwich in the 1300s where Julian, a woman on her deathbed, is being shown one of her last few visions from Christ. We still have to answer that question of how a baby is healed. So remember, Julian got herself into this whole experience because through fervent prayer, she asked God to let her become intimately acquainted with his passion, with his suffering, in the hopes that it might strengthen her faith and give her compassion. On the whole, these revelations are full of the most romantic descriptions of Christ's love for us. At one point, she hears Jesus say, It is a joy, a bliss, an endless satisfying to me that ever I suffered passion for thee. And if I might suffer more, I would suffer more. But even with all of this kindness she hears from Christ, she cannot forget about the suffering of the world or about her own sin. She says that at the same time that God was sharing about his mercy and love for her, He was also reminding her that she would go on to sin. And realizing this in the presence of God, Julian writes that she, quote, conceived a soft dread. She goes on to explain sin, saying, It maketh man and woman hateful in their own sight, so far forth that after a while they'll thinketh themselves not worthy, but as to sink in hell. 
she writes of the practice of confession, saying, when we see ourselves so foul and then are stirred of the Holy Ghost by contrition unto prayer and desire for the amending of our life, then hope we that God hath forgiven us our sins. Julian describes God's response to the penitent, ashamed confessor, writing, And then showed our courteous Lord himself to the soul, saying sweetly thus, My darling, I am glad thou art come to me. In all thy woe I have ever been with thee, and now seest thou my loving, and be one in bliss. I looked up the origins of this very old English word, darling. It's a diminutive of dear, meaning precious, loved, scarce. And the ling suffix is used to mean smaller, lesser, young. It was apparently a very common term of affection back then, darling. A small, loved, precious thing. I couldn't help but see it as the equivalent of my running definition of baby this season. And I love that in Julian's description of Christ's response to a confession, to the revealing of shame and pain, Jesus begins by first calling the confessor his darling, or, you know, calling him or her his baby. If you've heard the other episodes of this season, you know that the image of Christ that was shown to Julian in her visions was one of a loving, forgiving, self-sacrificing parent. And when I finished Julian's book and had begun to accept that I'd really lost my baby and there was nothing I could have done or could do about it, I realized that the only thing to do was return to my God. Because, you know, every baby or child who's been hurt knows that the only person that can make it better, the only one that can really soothe their sorrows, is their parent. They must find their mother or their father. Today's story was such a rich reminder that the process of confession may include real traumas, real wounds that need to be tended to, perhaps for the rest of our lives, But also, at its core, confession is just like finally getting up the courage to call out to our mom or dad and tell them what's wrong. To be reminded that we belong to someone who wants to forgive us. This episode is also a good reminder for those of us that might hear a confession of some sort one day, to remember that every person, no matter what they've done or where they've been, was once a small thing created by God, a small thing that he died to forgive. Thank you to the woman who so bravely shared her story with me for today's episode. If you are listening, please know how grateful I was for our time together and for the grace you shared through your experience. This is the end of Salty's fourth season of the show. If you haven't been following along all season, I am currently at the very end of my pregnancy with a baby girl that God sent our way about three weeks after we miscarried last May. I'm so relieved that I was able to finish this season before having a baby attached to me 24-7. But because of this baby, I'm not entirely sure how or when I'll be back to Salty. But please follow Salty on Instagram at Salty Podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you can stay updated about the future of the show. 
Oh, and I thought that I'd share with all of you that we are naming our daughter Hazel, a nod to the passage in Julian's book that contributed so much to my healing from loss. The part where Julian sees God holding what looks like a hazelnut in his hand. Again, you can hear about that whole thing if you're curious by listening to episode 23. I cannot end this season without thanking Daniel Pimentel and his band The Substant for lending me their music this season. Daniel, your music ministered to me and inspired me and kept me awake while I was editing late at night. I am so excited to hear and support whatever else you choose to create. If you enjoyed the music this season, please go find Daniel Pimentel and The Substant on iTunes, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Maybe write him a review or shoot him a message about a song you liked. And one last thing, if you liked this show, please let me know by writing me a review on Apple Podcast. Reviews help others find the show more easily, and it helps remind me that I'm not sending all of this out to an endless void. (laughs) Okay. Okay. That's it. Thank you guys all so much for listening. Bye.